Father, I ask this morning that um, that you, God, would give me an utterance of wisdom. Dear Lord, that uh, the things that I say would be helpful. That you would give me words about your word that would, God, that would be in line with the nature of your word, not opposed to it. Pray, Father, that you put a guard over my mouth to keep me from saying anything that's unhelpful. But God, I ask for an anointing over my speaking and over our hearing. I pray, Father, that that we're needed, you would convict us. God, we're needed, you would encourage and exhort us. God, even if needed, you would rebuke and warn us. But Father, as we've already talked about, that, that you would teach us your ways by your Spirit, through your Word. Father, I was thinking about how I have said in this church, I have over the years listened to so many sermons, and some of them I, I can remember. They just stand out to me. Most of them I can't. But I trust, God, that in every one of them, whether I remember or not, that you were working, planting seed and watering seed, and that the spiritual growth has come because of that word. And so I pray for that today. If this is something, God, that, that needs to be remembered, that you would cause it to be implanted, God, in us in such a way that, that we always remember something that is said. But God, if it is, even if we don't remember the words today in a, a few weeks, God, that what we hear, dear Lord, would go into our heart and in the days and weeks and months ahead would produce a harvest of righteousness, of right living and godliness. Father, I pray that you would set us free this morning from our sin and that you would make us ready to do the same for others. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to go back for a moment to last week's parable from Luke chapter 7. Some of you were here, if you weren't. Either way, I want to kind of recap for a moment. Where Jesus was attending this dinner at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And as he was at this dinner, a woman who was well known in that town as a sinner came into the home and she begins to worship Jesus in a rather unusual way. Crying and tears falling on his feet. She washes his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee was indignant at this. And he felt like if Jesus was really a prophet, he would shun this woman. But Jesus used this and he replied to Simon and he tells them the parable of two debtors that both owed a creditor and one owed a very large debt, one a much smaller debt, but neither person could pay back what they owed their creditor. But rather than punishing them, that creditor, who was gracious and generous, forgave both the debts. And Jesus used that and he posed a question to Simon. And he said, which one of these two people do you think will have more affection for the creditor? And Jesus affirmed that it would be the one who was forgiven the greater debt. And what we talked about was how it was the awareness that this woman had of her sin, 
of the debt that she owed God. It was her awareness of that and her awareness of how gracious he had been in forgiving her that produced in her and out of her this personal, authentic, unashamed, sacrificial worship of Christ. That her awareness led to gratitude that led to worship. And Simon the Pharisee, on the other hand, had very little awareness of his sin debt. He was self-righteous. He was hard-hearted. He was not filled with gratitude. And so he did not even show Jesus the customary actions that you would show a guest coming into your home, let alone someone that you thought might be a prophet. And so our conclusion from that last week was that the more awareness you have of your sin debt before God and the more gratitude you have for the grace that God has given you, the greater you will love. That that gratitude in you for what God has done will produce in you a great love. And the reason that I wanted to go back to this is because I do think that is love for God, but I also think it is love for people, which is the point of the parable today. Jesus connects deeply, tightly in Scripture. He binds together love for God and love for one another in the church. In Mark 12, Jesus is asked a question, which command of God is the most important? And he answers, most of you know his answer, love God more than anyone or anything. It's the greatest commandment. But then Jesus continues and he answers a question he was not asked. He says, and the second greatest commandment is like it, love one another sacrificially. And then he summarizes by saying there's no greater commandment than these. He puts them together. In doing so, Jesus makes clear that to have in our hearts a supreme hunger and dedication to Him is the most important thing that we can give ourselves to in this life. I'll say it again. Loving God more than anyone or anything is the most important endeavor we can give ourselves to in this life. We are all busy. We are filled with activity. Some we love, some we loathe. Nothing is to be greater than our call to love God and to love, to love Him supremely. And anything we do in our life should complement that command, not compete with it. But Jesus doesn't allow us to think that's the end of it. And and if we're really honest, that's where a, a lot of people land, even believers. I'll love God supremely. I'll have God with me. I, I will care for Him. But I'm kind of going to do that by myself. I, I'm going to do that in, in isolation. And the problem is Jesus never gives a Christian that opportunity. If you want to live biblical Christianity and the call that He has given you, it can't be done in isolation. Jesus doesn't allow us to think that we can love and honor God separated from a community of believers. John, the beloved disciple... Decades after the resurrection of Jesus, maybe 40 years after, writes one of his letters, 1 John. 
And he says in it that the way you can tell if a Christian is abiding in Christ is that they have a love for their brothers and sisters in the faith. And he puts it out there as an evidence. Are you abiding in Jesus? Here's one way that you can tell. You have love for the people of God and the church that He's put you in. So the more that you remember your sin debt God has released you from, the greater you will love. And that love will first go up to God, and secondly, just like it, it will go out to your fellow believers in the church. So last week I said to you that if you find your affection for God is diminishing... That is likely tied to a diminishing gratitude for His grace. And I would say to you this week, that if you find your affection for the people of God diminishing, it is likely tied to the same. You will only be successful in showing grace to one another if you are first abiding in gratitude for all that God has done for you. And if you are abiding in gratitude for all that He has done, then a byproduct of that will be love for each other. Now, we all show love differently. It doesn't all come out the same in us. But we will have a general desire to be together and express love to one another when we are abiding in Christ. So, with that as kind of the backdrop for today, let's look at this life truth together. If you're a note taker, if you have a worship guide, this life truth is kind of a summary statement. It's the, what I think is the heart of the parable that we're about to look at today that I think is tied to the one from last week. Here's this life truth. If you are filled with gratitude for the sin debt that God has released you from, then it will be very difficult to imprison a brother or sister over the sin debt they owe you. If you are filled with gratitude for the sin debt God has released you from, it will be very difficult to imprison a brother or sister over the sin debt that they owe you. Today's parable comes in the context, Matthew chapter 18, of two important instructions from Jesus. If you were to read all of Matthew 18, you will see two things that stand out right before Jesus shares this parable. The first one is that he is teaching his disciples a process by which they should seek to restore or reconcile with a brother or a sister who has sinned. If if a brother or sister has sinned against them or perhaps against the church, Jesus gives a process that you should follow to handle that. Jesus is not concerned in giving that process with with helping the offended person win an argument. He is concerned with helping you win peace and find reconciliation. It's a three-step process. He says, number one, just go have a private conversation with them. Just go talk to them and see if you can find peace. And hopefully that's it and no one ever knows it except you and them and it ends there. He says, if, if peace is not found, then, then go find one more brother or sister, maybe two, and then meet together as a group and seek peace. And hopefully it ends there. And no one else knows about it except this very small group. And if that doesn't work, if there's still no peace, then a broader church involvement is required, which I think 
begins with and includes the elders or the leaders of the church. That's the process Jesus gives. And that seems to stir up a question in the mind of Peter. And so right after Jesus gives that process of reconciliation, restoration of a brother or sister who sinned against you, Peter goes to Jesus and essentially says, okay, how many times should I go through that process with the same brother or sister who sinned against me? Like how many times do I do that? The common teaching in Judaism was three times. The same brother or sister offends you, sins against you in the same way. Forgive them three times. That will show that you're a merciful person. If they do it a fourth time, you are not under any obligation to still forgive them. Peter, though, has learned something from Jesus. He's learned that we need to go beyond the teaching of the Pharisees. So so Peter decides to ask the question and then give a suggested answer. And he wants to show how generous he is. So he says seven times. I know they say three, maybe we should do it seven times. And Jesus answers Peter and he says, when it comes to the family of God, there should be no limit. You forgive and you keep forgiving a repentant brother or sister without maintaining account of the wrongs against you. Almost every wedding I've ever been at, a Christian wedding, they like to involve... The, the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, I believe it is, that talks about what love is, right? And we think of that in, in context of marriage, but it's first and foremost the love God has for us. And one of the characteristics of love is it keeps no record of wrongs. How many times has God reminded you of your sin in order to punish you? Remember what I forgave you from in order not to bring out gratitude, but in order to guilt you or punish you. And the answer to that is that's not how God works. He wants us to remember what He's done for us, but not to condemn us. And He says the love you have for one another should be the same. Don't keep records of wrongs. It's not about, I've already done this four times, now five times, now six times. Jesus says if they're repentant, You forgive and you keep on forgiving because from the heart of a true disciple flows this willingness to patiently bear with one another until the end. Either until you stand before Christ or until He returns. And then immediately after that conversation with Peter, Jesus gives what some have called the most soul-searching parable in all of the Gospels. The parable of the unforgiving servant. So that's our context. And here's our parable. There was a king. That king represents God. And that king decides to bring his servants before him to settle their accounts. That represents judgment. And the servant that is highlighted in the story by Jesus is found to owe the king 10,000 talents. To put that in perspective, in that day, a common laborer would need 20 years to earn one talent. So this amount is equivalent in our culture today of billions and billions of dollars. And the servant promises the king, if you'll be patient, I will work and I will pay you back. But Jesus is purposefully using this exorbitant figure 
to show that this servant owed a debt they could never pay if they had multiple lifetimes to do it. In other words, it was quite ridiculous that he was saying, just be patient and I'll get you your money. He could never do that. This represents our sin debt before God on the day of judgment. No matter what we do, no matter what we do or how many lifetimes we had to do it, we could never cover our sin debt. Ever. The only hope we have is the generosity of God. And indeed, the king in this parable is generous. And he has mercy upon the servant. And he doesn't just have mercy and give him more time. He doesn't have just have mercy and say, okay, I'm going to let you live. I'm not going to put your family in prison. I'm just going to let you work for me and rest of your life and, and just pay me back the debt and, as you can. He has mercy and completely forgives billions and billions and billions of dollars that this guy owes him. He releases him and says, you are free. So that freed servant leaves in joy. And he comes across a fellow servant representing our brothers and sisters in the church. And that freed servant comes across a servant that owes him a hundred denarii, about four months of wages. And the servant in debt asks for patience. Give me time and I'll take care of what I owe you. And certainly that was actually within reason. He could do that. It's a significant amount of money, but over time he could pay him back. But the freed servant says no. Doesn't show him the mercy that he has been shown. And he has that servant placed into prison. And when the other servants saw what happened, they were distressed and they reported it to the king. And in anger, that king calls that freed servant back to him and confronts him over his lack of compassion. And then he delivers him to the jailers until he can pay what he owes. So let's make some observations on this text, this parable. First of all, when a brother or a sister in Christ sins against you, it is considered a debt. When a brother or sister in Christ intentionally or unintentionally sins against you, Jesus refers to it as a debt. The reason I want to point that out is because I want you to know that Jesus is not simply resolving the Christian who sins against you. He is not saying their offense is no big deal. Four months worth of wages is significant. And so beginning when, when, when the Word calls you to be merciful, it's not calling you to say, no big deal what you did. It may be very significant what they did. It may be a very real hurt. It may be a very real pain that they have caused you. Even if they didn't mean to do it. In my experience in conflicts among believers, I, I feel like the majority of the time, people don't even know they've hurt you. It's one of the reasons I think Jesus said, just start with a conversation. Go to them and talk. Is that awkward? Yeah. It's awkward to have someone come to you and say, you may not even be aware of this, but this 
really offended me. And I think a lot of times those people are like, I had no idea. I'm sorry. But sometimes there are deeper hurts than that. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes there's real division among Christians and people in the church. And so I would say, church, we should think carefully about how we act to one another. It does matter how we treat one another in the church. I've said it many times, I'll say it again. This is the most important family you have. I'm not saying that you don't have responsibility to your spouse or your kids. You do. God takes that very, very seriously. Very seriously. But the family of God, the people together redeemed by Christ, this is the family that will be together for all of eternity. It is an extremely important family. And it matters how we treat one another. If, if you're a parent and, and, and it grieves you when your children mistreat one another, that's how God feels when He sees that in the church. Or at least that's a picture of that feeling. So we should think carefully about how we act to one another. We should not be callous about sin. We should not be callous about other people's feelings. We can't control how people act. We can't control how they feel. But Jesus did make us responsible in our local church to encourage one another spiritually. To be concerned about one another's spiritual growth. And to avoid doing things that would cause one another to stumble. So we should put forth time and effort into considering how to stir one another up to greater love and good works. And when there is conflict, we should work for peace. We should pursue peace strongly in the church. Because when we sin against one another, it is a debt. The second observation is that the motivation to set someone free from that debt they owe you comes out of gratitude for your own freedom. The motivation to set someone free from that debt they owe you when they sin against you, the motivation is gratitude for your own freedom. People who are grateful for their freedom are willing to share that freedom. People who are willing... This is why I think it's so important to understand that we don't earn our freedom in God. Because if you've earned your salvation, you don't have to share that with anybody. Because you earned it. You worked for it. But the Bible says you didn't earn anything. You had a debt you could not pay. It's the free gift of salvation. And when you understand that, That you've been set free, not because you earned it, but you've been set free. When you understand that, then you want to share that freedom with others. Let me put it another way. If you truly understand the mercy God has given you, then you will not demand justice when a fellow believer sins against you. If you want mercy, you don't demand justice. Because you understand that mercy is given and received and it should be shared. It is possible for you to be thankful for being off the hook for your debt without being filled with gratitude for the king that released you. And if you 
don't have that motivation to want to set other believers free when they sin, then it shows that you're thankful that you're not going to have to pay for your actions, but you're not filled with gratitude toward the One who set you free. Sin hurts. It causes pain. It causes sorrow. And I tend to think that some of the greatest hurt that we have to deal with is when it's against someone we love. Most people that I, I've been around, they, they can handle someone sinning against them. It's extremely difficult when it's against someone they love. But what Jesus is saying is, that sin against you, that sin against someone you love by a fellow believer, that's a, that's a hundred denarii of debt. But your sin against God was 10,000 talents. He says, church, no one will ever owe you a debt greater than the debt you owed God. No, no matter how much pain it has caused, and that is not... Again, it's not trivializing it. It's not saying they didn't cause you hurt. It's just saying the debt they owe you, nothing compared to the debt you owe God, and God released you from it. So yeah, when you look at it in the parable and you think, how ridiculous for this guy who owed billions of dollars to this king, and the king says, I release you, and he walks outside and he finds someone that owes him a a few hundred dollars or whatever, and he says, I don't release you. How, how ridiculous. And Jesus is using this to, to say, yeah. What has God released you from? So how do you not release your fellow servants? It's really important for us to remember, God did not simply wipe your debt out. He didn't just simply say, all right, clean slate. Jesus stepped before the king and he paid your debt. He wrote the check on your behalf and he set you free. So when you're faced with a fellow believer that they have sinned against you and they're repentant for what they have done and Maybe they have done it over and over and over and over. But yet you still choose to set them free. You are displaying Jesus in you. You are showing Christ in you. Because you, you have this opportunity to be just like Him. Not to say the debt doesn't matter. Not to say the sin didn't hurt. But to say, I'm going to release you from it in love for my God and for you, which is what Jesus did. So it is a debt. The motivation to set someone free from that debt comes from gratitude for your own freedom. So I'll just stop there and say again, a lot of this for us may be our need to pursue thankfulness in God for what He has done to worship Him, to ask Him for thankfulness, to remember our sin, to develop through community and through prayer and through worship 
corporately and in small groups to develop that gratitude for all He has done. To ask Him to give that to us. And from that gratitude, forgiveness for others spills over. What happens though when we don't pursue that gratitude? What happens when we don't have it? What happens when we willfully refuse to forgive a fellow Christian? That's the last few blanks here. Refusing to forgive a fellow Christian does two things that I want us to see from the text. Refusing to forgive a fellow Christian. First of all, it is upsetting to the church around you. To refuse to forgive a fellow Christian is upsetting, distressing to the church around you. In verse 31, I find it very interesting that the way Jesus tells this parable is that when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and they went to the master. The other servants are the ones that saw this freed servant demanding justice from this servant that owed him something. And they were in great distress over what they saw. And so they go to the king and they take that matter to him. And and honestly, that, that could be a picture that at times the church has to be involved in reconciliation, has to be involved in helping there to be forgiveness, even discipline in matters of unforgiveness. But I also think it points to something else. People notice when we don't forgive. Our kids will notice when we don't forgive. Those around us will notice when we don't forgive. Even people outside the church will notice when we don't forgive. Can you imagine a believer going to a non-believer to gossip and criticize and run down a fellow believer. What would that say to that lost person? That their forgiveness is not great enough to help them love and forgive one another. People notice when we don't forgive. And it's upsetting to the church that we're in when we don't forgive. And what I mean by that is it could be upsetting, like in a, in, a, in a very practical way, like you just see, like, man, this person can't forgive this person, and it is just, it's so awkward and difficult, and oh, it just, it's distressing. Like, that can happen inside of a church. But also what I mean by upsetting is in a spiritual way. Unforgiveness, if it is left unchecked, will eventually take you to bitterness. Bitterness and resentment. And Hebrews chapter 12 says that bitterness in us will eventually rise up and defile many. Not just us, but people around us. And so what I mean when I say that unforgiveness in a body of believers can be upsetting is I mean it can cause confusion, it can cause division. All types of trouble can be the result of someone having a hard and prideful heart where they refuse to share freedom and forgive each other. That bitterness will defile many. But that bitterness will do something else as well. Refusing to forgive a fellow Christian is upsetting to the church around you. It is also tormenting to your own soul. 
Refusing to forgive a fellow Christian is tormenting to your own soul. It's very interesting. The ESV, when it gives Matthew 18, gets to the end, it says that because the king was angry with this servant who refused to forgive, that the master handed him over to be placed into jail or to the jailers. But the original word in the Greek is not jailer, it's tormentor. And if you actually go and look at some of the older translations, King James or the NASB, you'll actually see that it says they're handed over to the tormentor. The CSB that we're reading this morning chose to handle this by saying the master handed him over to the jailer to be tortured or to be tormented. What does that mean? I, you know, to, to me, like I'm, 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 I'm kind of tracking with the parable. Like I'm understanding it till I get to that part. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what? The king is God. I'm the servant. I'm turned over to be tormented. What, what just happened? Well, first of all, I think it's very important to understand that this parable is not about salvation. Remember what we said in the very opening sermon in this series is that parables have a meaning. Sometimes one primary meaning, maybe a couple. The meaning of this parable is not about salvation. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching about forgiveness among believers. So I absolutely don't believe what Jesus is saying here is that if you don't forgive, you'll lose your salvation. I don't think he's saying that any more than he's saying that if you do forgive, you'll earn your salvation. But I also think Jesus is using this very difficult language for a reason. He chose to use the word tormentor for someone who refuses to forgive a fellow servant. So I think one takeaway from that is Jesus anticipates that, yes, people who have truly experienced freedom will in time, by the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit, want to offer that freedom to other Christians. Mercy is never easy. Maybe if you have a spiritual gift of mercy, which I do believe is one of the gifts, that it's, it's a little easier. But I've met people that I think have that gift that still struggle at times with forgiveness. Mercy's never easy. So any believer is going to struggle at times to forgive and show mercy. But I think at least we can say that if... If your lifestyle is to continually live in such a way that you don't show mercy and you don't feel convicted to show mercy, and that is your lifestyle over time, and there's not conviction that comes to forgive, I think it is a sign of a significant spiritual problem, potentially, that you really haven't experienced the gift of salvation. So I do think Jesus may have that in mind, but I also think there's something else we need to consider. Something else that I think Jesus has in mind when He uses this language. And that is that He taught us in the Beatitudes, it is the merciful who will have mercy. I think it is possible for us to limit our own enjoyment of grace by refusing to be gracious to others. 
I think for us to think that we can withhold mercy and withhold unforgiveness and there will be no impact on our lives, our emotions, our mindset, our spirituality before God, I think that is a complete fallacy. I think God is patient with us and gives us time to work through things to obey and show mercy and forgiveness, but I think a continual refusal to do that will result in harm to ourselves. Not loss of salvation, but potentially loss of joy and grace. To put it maybe more pointedly, I think unforgiveness and bitterness that you are resolute in can invite the discipline of God into your life. I think it can hinder your spiritual growth. I think it can hinder your anointing, your setting apart in the gifts that you have and the effectiveness of them. I think in general, it can make you a miserable person. I think unforgiving people will find themselves in a prison of constant distress. Tormented by their own unforgiveness and not even realizing that's what it is. If you've ever been around someone who that's just how they are, they're hard-hearted and they're unforgiving, if you really looked at them, are they not miserable people? I think the old adage, while not biblical, is true. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Church, some of our own struggles for peace can be a result of unforgiveness. I think joy is found in experiencing freedom from your sin debt. And I think that experience is truly understood when you joyfully and willingly share mercy with others. I've used this illustration before. Um, I'm not real good at coming up with new ones. But you know, when you really enjoy something... There's something in you, you want to share it. You would you really enjoy a, a good restaurant, a good meal, a good movie, something like part of the consummation of your joy is you want to tell people about it. I, 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 you, you may even want to take them there so they can experience it and you can see them experiencing that. And it does something to help you enjoy it more. I think forgiveness is the same. I think to truly enjoy mercy and forgiveness, we need to share it with others. We need to see what it's like in their life to set them free from their debt against us. And I think that helps us to enjoy what God has given us. I think you can actually be glad to find yourself sharing forgiveness with a repentant brother or sister who asks you. Especially when you realize that releasing them from their debt is an act of worship. You are loving God well when you forgive someone what they have sinned against you. I will say, I do believe that some forgiveness among Christians is going to be harder than others. I think there are times where people hurt us so grievously so continually, and maybe they're not repentant of it. They're a believer, 
or they claim to be one, but even when confronted, they, they refuse to forgive, they refuse to be reconciled. And you know what? Forgiveness at that point, it can seem like an uphill climb. Really, really difficult. Really hard to know what it even looks like. And, and I would encourage you, if that, if that resonates with you, if you can say, yeah, that's where I'm at, uh, I, I want to encourage you to not give up. To struggle with it. In prayer, in counsel, with a pastor or a fellow believer, I, I don't think you should be in counsel about two, with, with two dozen believers about it. I definitely think that gets into gossip and criticism and spreading division. But I think you should wrestle with it. There's a book in our library that if you're really struggling with forgiveness, I would highly recommend. It's called Total Forgiveness. Um, and I, I, I think I, I kind of jokingly said to myself, I ordered like four copies of it because I was like, I know people will need this. And like none of them moved. And I was like, oh, I guess we're good. Like We're not struggling. With forgiveness. But it is back there. R.T. Kendall. It's a great book on forgiveness. And I will say to you that I think the greater the sin against you, the greater the grace God will give you to forgive it. I also think the greater the personal blessing that you will receive out of that forgiveness. But church, I dare say the majority of our forgiveness that we need to share is not about deep, grievous, continual sin It's about everyday normative offenses that are the result of living life together in a community. Some intentional, some unintentional. I think a lot of them unintentional. And I want to say to you that the health of any local church, the health of agape, is decided by whether or not the people in it will choose to worship God and sacrifice for one another through forgiveness. When God forgave us and when He atoned for our sins, He he wasn't just setting us free. He was building a new community. A community that He planned to set apart from the world and show to the world His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His wisdom. And I, I will tell you very transparently that my number one concern is that we hunger for God in this church. But my next concern, just like it, is that we love each other. And and I struggle wanting us to do that well. I know that I can try and strong arm people into community and forgiveness. I can try to guilt them into it. I could try to use the power of influence to get people to want to be in community and want to love each other and want to talk to one another and want to forgive one another. But you know what? At the end of the day, that won't last. It won't last very long. Until we're convinced in our heart that Jesus ties our love for Him to our love for each other, to be in community and forgive one another and grow together, until we desire to obey Him in that, then we're never going to give ourselves to it. And I can't create that in anyone. I can't create that in me. That's why I just keep coming back to us about our need to rely on Christ and to ask Him for that kind of hunger and for that kind of desire and trust that He will give it. Ask, seek, knock. He will answer.
What does it look like to forgive? That's a really hard question. So for today, I'll just say it looks like this. Let the people of God who have offended you walk in freedom next to you. Give them the same freedom you have. Release them. They don't owe you. They don't have to make it up to you. They don't have to come back to you every now and then and and just say, yeah, hey, just that thing I did, I just want to say again, I'm sorry. Release them. But don't release them from a distance. I'm going to release them, but I'm not going to be around them. Let them live in that freedom next to you. Sometimes the what we need to do when we've we've had a tough run with somebody, like our desire is to separate from them and stay away from them, when what we need to do is come together and experience some new and fresh relationship together that we can move past what happened. I'm going to ask you guys in the booth if you would turn the uh, lights down, and uh, I want to do something similar to what I did last week. We have a prayer focus on the front of the worship guide. Probably should have left the lights up so you could read it, but I'll just read it to you. Sorry about that. Matthew 18.4, right before Jesus starts all of this teaching. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He had brought a child before the disciples, right before he starts all this teaching. And, and he says... To the disciples, look at this child and know that whoever is humble like this child, that is the person that's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were always concerned about who the greatest was going to be. Josh pointed that out a couple weeks ago when he was teaching. They even argued over who would sit at his right hand in the coming kingdom. Jesus is using an illustration. If you really want to be great, be like this child, which is probably ridiculous to the disciples because they would think, that he would be telling the child, be like these men, these women who are following me. I chose that passage I did today because I think that forgiveness requires humility. It requires us to be humble. When Jesus says to be like this child, he's not telling us to be childish. He's telling us that we should have a dependence on our Father in heaven the way a child has a dependence on their parent. And we should be humble like children. As a parent, one of the things that I've learned raising six kids is they can go from at each other's throats to one minute later, best of friends. Like they'll have a fight about something, they'll argue about something, and then they just move on to play together and to move on. They, kids don't hold grudges. We learn to do that as we get older. So I think it's something that we must be set free from, holding grudges. And so before we worship, before I call the worship team up, I want to do something similar to what we did last week. I just want us to take a moment of silence. And I realize it's not going to be completely quiet, that's fine. But I just want us to take a moment and meditate on what God is saying to us. I truly think if if you from your heart say, 
Lord, speak to me. Your servant is listening that he will. I'm not promising you'll, you'll hear some audible voice. I'm just saying I do think he speaks to us. He's ready to forgive. I think he's ready to speak to us. So I want us to take a moment. I just want us to, to quietly, as quietly as we can, awkward silence, just meditate on what God has ta- taught us today and what his word has shared with us. And then in just a moment, I will come back up and I will lead us into our time of prayer together and, and singing.